Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus who had died. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was a day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, and did not find, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Peace be with you. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sojourn again. Thank you uh, so much for being with us this morning. Um, in Luke 9, Jesus asks his disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? And they, they give him a few, a few answers. And then he asks, but, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, the Christ of God, the Messiah. And he charges them and he commands them to, to tell no one. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus said these things back in Luke 9. So at this point of our text today, Jesus has been rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and has been killed. So we would, we would expect the disciples to be at the tomb, fasting, praying, singing, trusting the words of their master, waiting on a miracle, waiting on the, on the rebirth of the entire world. But that's not where we find them. The idea of resurrection was no less strange in the first century than it would be in the 21st century. Many Jews believed that in a, in a final, large-scale resurrection of all those who died in faithfulness to the covenant of Abraham. But no one, no one had the framework to believe that a single man might rise from the dead. And so, it's not as though the early disciples were just superstitious and gullible. That's, that's not what gave rise to this seemingly far-fetched Christian doctrine of the resurrection, no. No, Jesus had told them explicitly that he would die and that he would rise on the third day, but despite, despite all of his miracles, 
including raising others from the dead. They, they still didn't believe him. Obviously, Jesus was speaking figuratively, yes? Because everyone knows that when dead people, when, when people die, they stay dead. Let's go back to our text. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council. That's the, the Sanhedrin a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. Might remind us of Simeon looking for the kingdom of God in the temple, if you remember. Joseph of Arimathea, is, he's a man that we have never heard of before. He's a member of the Jewish Supreme Court, but he had dissented against the council's decision to crucify Jesus. He's a good and righteous man looking for the kingdom of God. In the Gospel of John, actually, we're told that he was a secret disciple of Jesus. Let's continue. This man, Joseph of Arimathea, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid it in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments, and on the Sabbath day they rested according to the command. So we see here that Joseph was accompanied by several female disciples of Jesus. The Gospels of Mark and Matthew each mention two women both named Mary, and the Gospel of Luke adds the name Joanna to the list. But all four Gospels go out of their way to tell us that the body of Jesus is cared for and wrapped in cloth and laid to rest by a man named Joseph and at least one Mary. Joseph and Mary. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Keep that in mind as we continue. So the women prepare spices and ointments, and they observe the Sabbath on Saturday. But on the first day of the week, that's, that's Sunday, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices that they had prepared. I think it's important for us to remember here that the, the women are not going to the tomb because they expect Jesus to be alive. They're going to the tomb simply because they weren't able to finish the burial process on account of the Sabbath. And just as a side note, because I do think this is beautiful, notice that Jesus had clearly taught his disciples to observe a weekly day of rest, and they are obedient. Not even the death of their master is going to get in the way of that. So the women arrive at the tomb. Let's keep reading. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men, two angels, stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third, and on the third day, rise. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, and I encourage you to look for this, 
Throughout the Gospel of Luke, women play a, a relatively prominent role. But they are never more prominent than here in the last couple of chapters as witnesses to the crucifixion and to the resurrection of Jesus. When times are most difficult and days become so bleak, it is the women who emerged as the exemplary disciples. We're not told what the men were doing, but we are told what the women are doing. And we have a lot to learn from their example. We're told that these female disciples had followed Jesus all the way from Galilee to Jerusalem to the cross to the tomb. And as the men were scattering and denying, denying their ties to Jesus, the women were faithfully following. Even when Jesus was a corpse, the women persisted in their loving devotion to Jesus. More than anything else, it's their love for him that ties them to him. And so in that sense, these women stand, again, as exemplars of the faith. Even when their faith faltered, even when they were stuck in their grief, even when they had no idea what the future held, even when all hope seemed lost, they continued loving and following Jesus. And of course, they are honored for this steadfast devotion. They are the very first recipients in the greatest news in the history of the world. Look at verse 8. And they, these women, and they remembered his words. This is terribly important. The faith of these women was not rooted in a, in a sentimental naivete. Their faith was rooted in the words of Christ. And the resurrection narrative actually hinges upon this detail. If the women do not remember the words of Jesus, they are not going to conclude that he has risen. They'll naturally conclude that his body was stolen or taken, and they will return to the apostles with a, with a false report. And so the narrative hinges on them remembering the words of Jesus, and they do remember. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So the women come back, and they tell the men and everyone about this empty tomb, and they tell them about the two angels, and they remind them of Jesus' words back in Luke 9. They remind them that Jesus told them to expect this. And the men don't believe it. They don't believe the women are giving them a reliable account. But if this story were made up, if Luke were concocting these events, he certainly would not have included these embarrassing details. He would not have based these events on the testimony of women who were not regarded as credible witnesses in the ancient world, but neither would he have depicted the faithlessness and skepticism of the disciples. 
These 11 men were the men upon whom the church was founded. This is, this is not a flattering narrative for them. And so we have good reason to conclude that this is actually what really happened. On the other hand, if, if you look, if you look upon the resurrection of Jesus with skepticism, you are in very good company. You are not the first person to doubt these events. The Christian gospel is good news in part because it tells us things that we didn't know to expect. That's part of the reason that we should consider that it's true. The things we aren't naturally inclined to believe, the things that we don't fully understand, those are actually things that are part of its defense. But if it's the truth of God, if our creator, we should expect, every human being should expect to be at least surprised, if not challenged. So the men respond with skepticism, but with one exception. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now, I, I want to be clear. The point is not to bash on the men and pander to the women. It's not what Luke is doing. That's not what I'm doing. But I think Luke demonstrates for us and for the male-dominated first century world the unique role that femininity, femininity has to play in the kingdom of God. The kingdom depends upon distinctly feminine forms of faithfulness just as much as it depends upon distinctly masculine forms of faithfulness. Both are necessary for the kingdom of God to manifest properly and gloriously in the world. But here we see that the loving and nurturing faith of these women keeps on going when, when the devotion of the men fails. It's not an exaggeration. I don't think it's an exaggeration. To say that as a, a network of relationship, the church's fellowship is most often held together by women. Consider this. In the Gospel of Luke, it's almost always the women who are depicted tending to the body of Christ. Whether swaddling his newborn body or pouring perfume upon his adult body or burying his dead body. It's almost always the women who are tending to the body of the Savior. And please hear me on this. There is no higher calling. Let's get back to what we pointed out earlier. That, that all four Gospels tell us that the body of Jesus is cared for, wrapped in cloth, and laid to rest by a man named Joseph and at least one Mary because there are several more details within the final chapters of Luke that draw our minds back to the opening chapters of Luke, to, back to the story of Jesus' birth. In both cases, we see Joseph's and Mary's caring for Jesus 
when he is unable to care for himself. In both cases, we see them wrapping him in cloth. They swaddle him after his birth, and they wrap him for burial after his death. In both cases, Jesus is sheltered within a vessel that has never been used before. He is sheltered within the virgin womb of Mary, and he is sheltered within the virgin tomb of Joseph. In both cases, people bring spices and ointments to him, just as the magi brought frankincense and myrrh following his birth, the women bring spices and ointments to him following his death. In both cases, we see angels announcing the good news. And in both cases, we see shepherds running to see him and marveling as they return home. In our text today, that that shepherd is Peter. So why mention this? Why mention these things? Well, we need to know that Luke has done this on purpose. Th- these are more than just interesting connections. Luke is making a point. In referring us back to the birth narrative, Luke is telling us that the resurrection of Jesus is a new birth. Just as Jesus emerged from the virgin womb, he emerges from the virgin tomb as the firstborn from the dead. The whole reason Jesus was born was to conquer death. For the moment he was born, from the moment he was born, his mission was to accomplish our redemption, humanity's redemption, by defeating our greatest enemy. And so from the cradle to the grave, Everything that Jesus did was aimed at bringing new life into a world of death. And by his new birth, he makes new birth possible for all. He makes new birth possible for you, each one of you. With the resurrection of Jesus, the entire world has been, in a sense, born again. At some point between that first Holy Saturday and that first Easter Sunday, everything changed. Nothing is the same anymore, and it's all for the better. We sing it during Christmas. Life and light to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. And so the call today, brothers and sisters, on Easter Sunday is to respond to this incredible news like the women in Luke 24. Remember his words. The women didn't understand Jesus' words in light of the resurrection. They understood his resurrection in light of his words. In the same way, we, none of us, can make sense of our lives by reading the word of God through the lens of our circumstances or, or the circumstances of our world. We make sense of our lives by reading our circumstances 
through the lens of God's word. The word of God interprets life for us. But if we, if we allow our circumstances, even the, just the culture around us, to dictate what we think about the word of God, we risk emptying it of its power. We risk cutting off hope at its source. And I know that you already feel this, but our world desperately needs hope. We're living in a disoriented and anxious age of widespread hopelessness. I find, it, I find it ironic that in 2020, also a term used to describe great eyesight, that our eyesight was actually impaired. Hindsight may not be 2020 after all. But the crisis of the past, the crises of the past three years aren't isolated. They really fit into a longer and larger pattern of events that seem to be bringing one world to an end and giving birth to a new one. So in the face of all of this, we need hope, but we don't need unsubstantiated hope. We don't, we don't feed hope by just looking on the bright side or ignoring evil. No, that's flimsy and vapid living and we need none of it. We need real hope rooted in real truth and real events, and to know the real truth and the real events, we have to begin where the women began, by remembering his words. Only the word of Christ has the power to give us hope in the middle of hopeless situations. Just imagine the shift that must have taken place when these women at the tomb finally understood what God was really doing. They went from grief to joy in an instant because they remembered his words. It all hinged on remembering his words. It all hinged upon them allowing his words to interpret their circumstances. Brothers and sisters, Dear saints of God, the Lord's words are real truth. His words are living and active and deep and meaningful. They have the power to impart wisdom and hope, to give joy, to orient you to reality, to restore you to life, to resurrect you back to life over and over and over again. That's why, that's, that's why we fill our gathering with so much of his word. That's why we impress the Psalms upon you as much as we do. Every moment of hopelessness, every moment of despair, every loss, every disappointment, every moment of pain, each one is like a death. And we need his words to bring us back to life every time, every time. Those of you who were baptized today, Maxine, Thomas, Olivia, look at me. Remember his words to you. Remember his words to you. In your baptism, the Lord has imparted his tangible grace to you. And he has said, you are mine and I am yours. All of my promises 
are yours in Christ. Remember his words to you when life gets hard and your heart is cold or you're in despair or in difficulty. Remember his words and look to those around you. Look to your parents, your grandparents, the people in your parish to help you remember. My goodness, oh, that we might all do that. (laughs) Would you help me remember? Remember his words. Trust his words. When days are dark, especially when days are dark, keep following Jesus. Attend to his body and remember his words. Because those who follow him all the way to the cross will be the first to know the joy of his resurrection. He will give you life according to his word. In closing, um, let's listen to this, this Easter Day poem. As though some heavy stone were rolled away, you find an open door where all was closed, wide as an empty tomb on Easter Day. Lost in your own dark wood, alone astray, you pause as though some secret were disclosed, as though some heavy stone were rolled away. You glimpse the sky above, wan and gray, wide through those shadowed branches interposed, wide as an empty tomb on Easter day. Perhaps there's light enough to find your way, for now the tangled wood feels less enclosed, as though some heavy stone were rolled away. You lift your feet out of the miry clay and seek the light in which you once reposed, wide as an empty tomb on Easter day. And then love calls your name, you hear him say, The way is open, death has been deposed, as though some heavy stone were rolled away, and you are free at last on Easter Day. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your words to us. We thank you for the word that is Christ. We thank you, or that just as Paul said earlier, that We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Lord, would you sustain us? Would you sustain all of us? Would you sustain those who have been baptized this day by your word? Lord, strengthen us with your word. Help us to meditate upon your word. Help us to treat your word as if it's the food that truly fills, the, tr- the food that truly nourishes, the food that truly sustains, the food that truly strengthens. Lord, let us not be captive to our circumstances, captive to our culture. Let us be captive to your word and thereby interpret all circumstances. But give us wisdom and hope and joy and temperance, and self-control. But as your spirit applies all that Christ died to purchase to each one of us who follow you. Lord, we need you, and we love you. Have mercy upon us, and help us, we pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.